0: Now, we've been surveying the book of Galatians together, and we come to chapter 5, and we'll read the first 15 verses. I'm not in any way attempting to exhaust it, but to survey these uh, chapters together. Now, as you're turning to Galatians 5, if you also will please take your hymn book and turn to page 859, 859, you'll find that to be the Westminster Confession of Faith, and you'll find chapter 20 at the bottom. 859, and just set it aside because we're going to look at it, read it together, and I want to be sure that you uh, have it before you so that we do not take the time to turn to it during the preaching itself. Galatians chapter 5. Let us briefly bow before the Lord. <clears throat> Our Heavenly Father, it is with great joy that we, your people, turn to your word. It is such refreshments to our souls to find on every page the Lord Jesus Christ and to know that you are the Redeemer of your people, that you have not left us in our awful sins, but that you have set us at liberty through the redeeming blood of Jesus. And now as we turn to this great book again and to the passage before us, we pray that we might understand more deeply and significantly the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. We pray that young and old may understand and that our little children will grow up knowing and loving you and understanding grace. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Galatians 5, beginning with verse 1, this is the word of God. For freedom Christ has set us free, stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. You were running well, who hindered you from obeying the truth. This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not... Consumed by one another. Some of you will recall W.H. Auden's famous lines, I like to sin, God likes to forgive, the world is admirably arranged. Well, the Lord disdains that attitude. It is a sure sign that one does not know the Lord if he says, I'm saved by grace and therefore I'm going to live like the devil. Who can know himself justified by grace through the work of Christ? Who can know himself covered by the blood of Jesus, washed clean by the blood of the Lamb? Who can know that his guilt has been removed by the redeeming work of Jesus Christ and yet say, I don't want to live for him, I don't want to love him, I don't want to follow him? And so Paul disdains antinomianism as well as legalism. Now the thrust of the book of Galatians is contra-legalism. Those Judaizers who are teaching the Gentile converts of the Apostle Paul that they need to add something, obedience to the law, circumcision, the the following of certain special days. They need to add the Mosaic law to the work that Christ has done in order that they might be considered as Christians. That's legalism. But the Apostle Paul is also concerned in this epistle to attack antinomianism. The view that the law has no place in the Christian life. The view that because of grace, we live in ways that dishonor the Lord. And so he turns his attention to Christian living now as we come to chapter 5, having laid the doctrinal doctrinal basis for this discussion. And the theme that we find in this passage is the preeminence of Christian freedom. If there's one word that you should remember when you think about the book of Galatians that summarizes the book for you, it's the word freedom. Freedom. Now, the first thing that we want to see is that Christian freedom is the sure fruit of the gospel. Christian freedom is the sure fruit of the good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection from the dead. In other words, Christian freedom is based on what Jesus has done upon his once-for-all accomplishment on the cross. Now, you will recall the core of this is summarized for us in chapter 3, beginning in verse 10 and following. There we read, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. And here in verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So the grand message of the book of Galatians is, the law of God came against me with all of its holy perfection. And because I am a sinner, it brought its great damning curse. But Jesus Christ, when He went to the cross, bore that curse in my place. He took from me forever that curse and he redeemed me by becoming, as my substitute, my curse for me, so that that curse is forever removed. And therefore, my freedom in Christ is based upon the redeeming work of Jesus, the shed blood of Jesus, what he did to free me from the curse of the law. Now, on some occasion, someone here needs to read The Origin of Paul's Religion by J. Gresham Machen. I've read it Nine times probably over the years. Machen makes the point as he thinks about some of these things that Paul's greatest contribution was in the area of thought. We see Paul the Apostle, how busy he was in the gospel ministry, how he went from place to place, how he established churches. All that being said, his greatest contribution was in the area of Christian thought. Paul the theologian sees the implications of the cross and the implications of justification. As Machen put it, the epic making significance of the cross for the first time, the death of Christ was viewed in its full historical and logical relationships. Christianity could not live without theology. Paul then, the great redemptive historical theologian of the church, understood the cross and its centrality and what it means for our justification, our acceptance by God, and also the implications of justification for Christian living. And so the cross brings, in its wake of necessity, the freedom of the Christian. Now, our confession beautifully summarizes our freedom in Christ. And if you will take your hymnal and look at page 859 and that chapter 20, I simply want to read the first paragraph and would like to ask you to follow along As I read, here we find a summary of what the Bible teaches about the liberty that Christ has brought to us and purchased for us. And so this is 859, chapter 20, paragraph 1. The liberty which Christ hath purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin, the the condemning wrath of God, the curse of the moral law, and in their being delivered from this present evil world, bondage to Satan, and dominion of sin. From the evil of afflictions, the sting of death, the victory of the grave, and everlasting damnation. And also in their free access to God and their yielding obedience unto Him, not out of slavish fear, but a childlike love and willing mind. All which were common also to believers under the law, but under the New Testament, the liberty of Christians is further enlarged in their freedom From the yoke of the ceremonial law to which the Jewish church was subjected, and in greater boldness of access to the throne of grace, and in fuller communications of the free spirit of God than believers under the law did ordinarily partake of. So this Christian freedom belonged, according to our confession, to all believers in all times, but through the work of the Holy Spirit. It abounds in this new covenant era to believers in Christ. And so Christian freedom is no insignificant matter if it includes all that we have read as summarized in the confession and taught in the Word of God. So that's the first point. Christian freedom is the sure fruit of the gospel. The second point is this. Uh, Christian freedom is freedom from the burdened life, and I'm talking primarily of the burden of sin and the burden of our guilt. Now you notice as we begin reading here in chapter 5 that he says in verse 1, For freedom Christ has set us free, stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Actually the Greek text says the freedom, because it is the unique freedom that is purchased for us by the blood of Jesus as he bore the curse on the cross for us. Christ's purpose in coming was to set you free. And in that freedom, the apostle says, you are to stand firm. Leon Morris says beautifully, it is perverse for free people to seek bondage. Now, isn't that true? Think about it for a moment. Think about, for example, Germany. And when the Berlin Wall came down, do you remember that? I thought it was the most magnificent thing to listen to the news every day and to hear about the wall coming down. And then country after country in the Eastern Bloc that were, that were set at liberty and freed, a wonderful, wonderful thing, a great time in history. What if they said, you know what, a lot of people paid for that with their blood, paid for that with their blood, sweat, and tears, and it's really time for us to build the wall again. Let's just build the Berlin Wall again and let's, uh, let's, let's see that those countries that once were enslaved under communism, let's, let's let that happen again. Let's, let's just go back to the way we were. Wouldn't you say that would be a perverse way of thinking? Well, surely you would. Well, how much more If we are purchased with the blood of Jesus and the Berlin Wall of our souls has been taken down, if we say, you know what, let's just go back to the way we were. Let's live as if we've never been freed by Christ. Let's live as if He didn't bear the curse for us. Let's let's live our lives as if we have not been set free by the blood of the Lamb. Well, that's what he's saying here. Don't go back, stand firm, and do not again be yoked, entangled by that yoke, of slavery. That's, that's beast of burden language, that yoke that would be put upon a beast. Don't let that yoke come upon you again. And notice he does say again, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. They were before engrossed in Gentile paganism. And he is saying to them, you've been freed in Christ. Don't go back to that Gentile paganism. Now had I time, I could show you that to Paul the Apostle, to be bound by the yoke of the law and to return to Gentile paganism are functionally equivalent. Anything that binds you and denies the freedom that you have in Christ, in terms of these things that we have seen, for example, in our confession, would be like returning to paganism or returning to the law. In either case, it is a yoke of bondage. And so, Freedom that we have in Christ is freedom from the burdened life. Now, you and I need to remember that because every day we are tempted to think again in terms of a guilty heart and a guilty soul. Every day we are tempted once again to think, my sin is so great, and yes, indeed it is. But we are, when we are faced with that reality, we are to be faced with the greater reality of the redeeming blood of Jesus that has set us free from our guilt. We are no longer under that burden. We are no longer to go back under that yoke and to live as if it never did happen. But there's a third thing to see as we think about this text, and it is the warning against losing our freedom. Now let's read again verses 2 through 4. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. And so you see the warning is a warning against losing the freedom that you have in Christ. Now by losing freedom, I mean going back, acting as if the cross never took place acting as if you were still under the curse. If you submit again to circumcision, he says, Christ is of no value to you. Now, remember, there's a context here. Uh, Timothy, for example, accepted and received circumcision for the sake of the gospel, so that the gospel might spread. What's the difference between Timothy's accepting circumcision and the Apostle Paul saying here that if you accept circumcision then Christ is of no value to you. The difference is this. Timothy accepted circumcision freely so that he could minister among Jews. He did it for the sake of the gospel. He was not compelled. But if anybody comes to you and says, you must be circumcised in order that you be justified and accepted by God, if you do that, then you are denying the freedom that you have in Christ. I hope you see the difference because it's extremely important There are many things that in Christian freedom we might do for the service of the gospel. But when anyone comes to you and says, You must do this in order to be accepted, and it's Jesus plus, then Christ is denied, and the gospel is of no effect to you. And so Christ is all or He is nothing. As I said this morning, you must either renounce your righteousness, or you must renounce the righteousness of Christ, You cannot mingle the two. You cannot say, I will have the righteousness that belongs to me, my own works, my own efforts, and then the righteousness of Christ to sort of make up for my failings. That's the problem with Roman Catholicism. No, it is Christ or it is you. And if it is you, you are lost forever. The only merit, the only righteousness is the imputed righteousness of Christ, by which you are received and accepted before the throne of God above. Either Christ or the law is a means of acceptance. But if law, Paul says plainly, if law, you are obligated to keep every speck of it. You see, he says in verse 3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. And so as over against the new perspective on Paul that says this is just a matter of circumcision or of dietary laws or what they might call boundary markers, no, no. Circumcision becomes the symbol for something greater and deeper. If you submit to that, then the whole law, you are obligated to every bit of the law in its holy, pure, righteous perfection. That's what the obedience of Christ is all about. That's what the cross is all about. He obeyed the law that you and I broke. He paid the penalty on the cross that you and I owed. Only He could do that. But if you set aside the cross and set aside the gospel, you are obligated yourself to keep the entire law of God. Well, hadn't Jesus pointed out the inflexible spirituality of the law? Do you remember what He said in Matthew chapter 5? In verses 21 and following, listen to what Jesus says about the spirituality of the law. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser. And then he goes on to say in verse 27, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Let me tell you, I came to grips with this as a young man because I was brought up in a home in which I was taught morality, and thank God for it. I was brought up in a home in which I was taught right and wrong and good and bad, and and yet I understood as a young man, as the Holy Spirit began to work in my heart, I saw that I was not good, that I hadn't murdered anyone, but I had murdered in my heart. That I hadn't lusted, but I had lusted in my heart. That I hadn't stolen, but I had stolen in my heart. I was led by the Spirit of God to see myself as helpless and hopeless. I even began to have dreams as a young man. I'm not suggesting that these were divine, uh, d- divine in- inspired dreams. But because of the burden that filled my heart, I began to have dreams about the judgment of God. And then when I heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, I was set free and I was set at liberty because I understood Jesus did this for me and I could not do it for myself. Do you get that? Do you understand that? We tend to qualify. We lower the standard. Well, I haven't murdered, but you've hated, haven't you? Well, I haven't lusted, but you've looked to lust, haven't you? And then we set up false saviors. No, no. It's the whole inflexible law of God to which we are bound if we set aside the cross of Jesus. And so we seek to be justified by the law, but he says in verse 4, You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. You are alienated from Christ. Falling from grace means you're functioning as if the gospel were not true. Now, the fourth thing I want us to see about this section of Scripture is that it describes for us Christian freedom. The free life is described, and it's described for us in verse 5. The free life is described this way, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. So, he describes the free life in three ways. First, he says it's life in the Holy Spirit. That means it's not of human merit. The Spirit makes a believer free. If the Son make you free, you shall be free indeed. And I remember again when I was in the dark, I was in a dank cell as a young man and the air was foul and I was in chains, but it was the Holy Spirit who set me free. I had heard the same verse over and over and over again growing up and it had meant nothing to me until finally I heard a minister Quote John 3.16, and the Holy Spirit took it to my heart, regenerated my soul, and converted me. He did this. He set me free. Paul says it's life in the Spirit, for through the Spirit by faith. And so the second portion of our life of freedom is that it is a life of faith. Now we've unpacked that as we've gone through the book. That means that we receive Christ freely offered in the gospel. We have forsaken all and trusted Him. That faith is not a work, but is simply a means of reception and is itself a gift of God. It's a grace. So the free life is in the Spirit by faith, but it's also eagerly expectant. Look at verse 5 again. For through the Spirit by faith we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Now wait a minute. Am I not righteous now? by the shed blood of Christ, by His justifying righteousness. Am I not righteous now? Of course. But he also points to the future in which there is a day in which there will be, as our catechism says, we will be openly acknowledged and acquitted. This is the great thing about justification. What is our justification? It is the acquittal of the last day that is pressed back into time and space upon you now. So that on that day of judgment, when the whole universe hears, this is a trophy of grace, I have set him free. I have received and accepted this sinner completely and utterly on the basis of the shed blood of my son. That verdict has been pressed back into time. And we are justified by faith now. And we will be justified by sight then. We walk by faith and not by sight. And so the free life is life in the Spirit it is by faith, and it is eagerly expectant. What a radical thing it is to be a Christian. Because you were called to view your life like this and to let it determine your understanding of the present as well as the future, which gives to you peace and trust over against guilt and self-pity. Now, having described the Christian life, the Apostle Paul wants you to understand that neither moral success nor moral failure determines your acceptance with God. Now, that doesn't mean that you, you, you throw away your concern for living for Christ, but nothing you do is good enough to earn your acceptance with God. And so neither moral success nor moral failure determines your acceptance with God. Verse 6, the first part. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision Counts for anything. You see, you cannot add to Christ without subtracting from Christ. You cannot add to Christ without subtracting from Christ. It is Christ, Christ completely and utterly. Not your moral success and not your moral failure determines your acceptance with God, but only the work of Christ determines your acceptance before God. Now, Paul takes this so seriously. Paul takes this so seriously that he speaks in almost incalculably, incredibly strong and severe language. So that, he says in verse 12, I wish those, he's talking about the Judaizers who are trying to mingle law with grace, I wish those who unsettled you would emasculate themselves. Now for some of you who may be reading my little commentary on Galatians, read this section and read especially the footnotes. Commentators, a lot of commentators try and get around what Paul is saying here. They just can't believe he's saying what he's saying. You see, pagan cults in the ancient world participated in ritual castration. And Paul puts those preaching circumcision on the same level as those commending themselves to their gods by this grotesque act. And he is so concerned that the gospel not be compromised, that Paul the Apostle here speaks of those who demand circumcision in order that we be accepted by God, he said, I wish the knife would slip. Now, I think very rarely should you speak that way. I think very rarely should we speak with that kind of severity. Paul doesn't do that in numbers of circumstances in which there are really serious issues, right? Think of Corinth. Does he do that there? No. No. But where the gospel is the issue, where the gospel is at stake, the Apostle Paul anathematizes those who deny the gospel. Chapter 1 pronounced his anathema, his curse, on those who teach a false gospel which is not another. And here he says, They have so mutilated the Christian faith that I wish they would just go the whole way and mutilate themselves. Man, that's strong language. Now, let me give you one more point warning against abusing freedom. Now, look at the second part of verse 6. He's told us that circumcision or uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And then in verses 13 through 15, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Paul's point here is that free grace, justification through the blood of Jesus, is never an excuse for perverse, libertine living. Verse 13, for you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. You know, when the gospel is truly preached, true gospel preachers will sometimes be accused of promoting a libertine lifestyle. I mean, we're saved apart from any works whatsoever. We're justified apart from any work that we do. And when that is clearly proclaimed, sometimes preachers are accused of being libertine, of being antinomian, of being loose living or or encouraging loose living. Think of Paul the Apostle. Paul was accused of this in the book of Romans. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. He was accused of this. As I was thinking through this, another example in history came to my mind, and that is the the example of Tobias Crisp. Now, you may have never heard of Tobias Crisp, but Tobias Crisp was a profound Puritan preacher. He was an Anglican who preached free grace, and he preached it so thoroughly and so fully that he was accused of antinomianism. He was not an antinomian. He believed that the law had a relation to the Christian life that was true and deep and real and significant, but he said over and over again, you are not saved by your work, but the work of Christ. You know what developed in that era, by the way, is an error that was called Neomianism. And Neomianism taught that faith and repentance and obedience were new conditions under the gospel. Uh, they were, they were uh, a new law, actually. And you hear that today. When faith is presented as a condition, repentance as a condition, obedience as a condition, there are no conditions in the covenant of grace. Faith is God's gift. Repentance is a gift of grace. Obedience is the fruit of the gospel. There are no conditions. It's free grace. So when Tobias Crisp preached that, he was called an antinomian. And to this day, for those who may know a little bit about church history but not much... When the name Tobias Chris comes up, they say, "Oh yeah, wasn't he an antinomian?" Because that's what they thought of been then, and that was the word that was passed down. Justification is never an excuse for perverse, libertine living, but sometimes people are going to draw that wrong conclusion. Grace calls believers to a manner of life and the manner of life to which it calls us believers is love. Faith working through love. Verse 13, Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so rather than biting and devouring, we are to love. Hendrickson uses a very, a very interesting um, image of a snake that fights with another snake and the snake puts the tail of the one in his mouth and the other puts the tail of the other in his mouth and the two snakes devour one another. And he says it can be like that in the church. Gospel, gospel living, because we are loved, is a life of acceptance, a life of love. And calling, you see, it's a calling, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Calling also brings with it enablement. And so the gospel frees from the bondage of both legalism and antinomianism. I am free to love now. Christ has paid the penalty. I am free from guilt. And I have, to use Luther's language, I have become Lord of all, therefore I can become servant of all. If I already own everything in Christ, what am I losing when I serve somebody? If I'm Lord of all, then why can't I serve all? After the pattern of him who came and did not serve himself, but served us. So how do you demonstrate freedom in Christ? If you really know that you're free in Christ, how will it show? Well, it will show, verse 14, by loving your neighbor as yourself. Not biting, not devouring, that's a denial of the freedom purchased for us by the one who loved us and served us, but by loving faithful service one to another according to God's call on our lives. By promoting purity, promoting peace, overcoming strife, showing gentleness, patience, and love manifests a heart from sin that is set free. I want to thank you for showing a lot of love to me because I am uh, well aware of my faults and I think that many of you are very well aware of my faults. But let me tell you, I have many more faults than those of which you are aware. And yet you're very gracious to me. Why? I believe it's because you know Christ. Because this congregation knows and loves the gospel. And so you've been gracious to overlook many a fault in your minister's life. Well, I commend you for that. Do that with one another. Do that in your homes. Do that with one another in the church. Live that way, one with another. That's what he's saying. If you're free, that's the way you're going to live. And since freedom is a grace freely given, liberty in Christ is shown by grace freely poured out in the lives of other people. And even the works of believers now, because of the cross, are expressions of sovereign, free grace. May the Lord bless this brief exposition of His Word.